Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Welcome to Between the Stacks, a podcast presented by the Athens Limestone County Public Library. Each episode brings you into the library to meet our collection of people and to introduce programs and ways we're connecting with the Limestone County, Alabama community. My name is Jennifer Baxter. I'm the library director at Athens Limestone County Public Library, and I'm sitting here with Madeline Burkhart from the Rosa Parks Museum. She just did a wonderful program for us, and we thought if you couldn't come into the library to see the program, we would bring a bit of that program to you. And I'm going to let Madeline take it away. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Let's start there. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm Madeline Burkhardt. I'm the adult education coordinator and curator at the Rosa Parks Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. I handle all of the art exhibitions, um, adult programming, and also this um, traveling exhibition that y'all have here. We were awarded a grant from the Institute for Museum and Library Services, and we were able to produce one traveling exhibit that covers more on Rosa Parks' life, and then one that covers the women of the Montgomery Bus Boycott, which is probably my favorite if I had to pick one, because it goes into some people that you probably haven't heard of before, which I think is really important. Yeah, yeah. I just actually had the opportunity to sit through your program, and I learned quite a bit. It was very interesting. For the listeners that didn't see the exhibit and didn't see the program, can you give them just a quick rundown of what you talked about today? Sure. So... There are a lot of unsung heroes and foot soldiers from the Montgomery Bus Boycott. The Montgomery Bus Boycott ran from 1955 to 1956, and it started when Rosa Louise Macaulay Parks refused to give up her seat to a white man on a Montgomery Line bus the evening of December 1st, 1955. And kind of interesting thing about that, she wasn't arrested for refusing to give up her seat. It was more that Bus drivers were allowed to act as police officers, and so she was refusing a authority figure, and that's what she was arrested for. So the Montgomery bus boycott was not just a one-person thing. Um, there were over 40,000 people who participated, ran for 382 days, and pretty much everyone stayed off of the buses for that amount of time. But other than Rosa Parks, of course, people know Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This was his like kind of first time dipping his toe into social justice. He was 26, about to be 27, um, new pastor in town. And then there's Reverend Ralph D. Abernathy, who others, you know, have heard of. But it's the women that a lot of people haven't really heard of before. One, though, that is more famous than others is Claudette Colvin, for good reason. She was arrested about nine months before Rosa Parks. She was 15. Uh, she refused to give up her seat. She kept saying, it's my constitutional right. They didn't care. Saying my constitutional right, right at 15 years old, which is pretty impressive. Right. I wouldn't have known that. No. I wouldn't have <laughs> had the guts, even yeah. if I had known. That's, to me, what gives me the chill bumps. Right. So... She kept screaming that, uh, but they didn't care. They arrested her, put her in the police car, and 
she was sexually harassed by the officers, again, 15 years old, and they are in the car trying to guess what bra size she wears. And I can't imagine how terrifying that experience would have been at that time. Right. I mean, you're in this car with these older men who have guns and weapons, and they're making jokes about physically and sexually abusing you, which... No, women kind of had it maybe a little bit more worse than the men during this time and really in general at protests because not only can they be physically assaulted, but they can be sexually assaulted. Exactly. Uh, men can be sexually assaulted as well, of course, but that it doesn't happen as often. Mm-hmm. And she was you know, screaming at the officers, so she was not afraid to fight back. And so she went to jail, got out. And a lot of people today are like, you know, why didn't she lead this movement? Why was she not the figurehead? And it's kind of complicated and it's going to sound, I hate saying it like this, but part of the problem was the area of town she was from. Um, Rosa Parks, she worked with a lot of upper class white families and she was really well known and well respected with the white community and with others in the city. Claudette Colvin was not known to them, again, 15. They also said that her skin was too dark to lead it, which that's the part that I really don't like talking about. And unfortunately, that is still a thing today. Some of my friends and colleagues have told me about because that's not something I can experience myself, but others have told me that that still happens today in some organizations. She also was, again, 15, and she was unwed and became pregnant soon after being arrested. So they decided not a good figurehead for this. And really, I don't think even today, if this were to happen in 2021, I don't think a person that fits, you know, those those different bullet points would be chosen to lead it, unfortunately. I, I kind of think that, that that stereotype still exists definitely like there's the whole stereotype of the angry black woman and i think that's what they were scared she was going to fit into in 1955 gotcha so i talked a little bit about her especially the part of her arrest and it was witnessed by a white man who witnessed it from the sidelines so wasn't involved in it at all but of course he decided he was going to write in to the paper and thank the police officers for how gentlemanly they were behaving and how, you know, they did everything but just turn the other cheek and they were just so amazing. And it's that interesting juxtaposition which you see today of one version of the story and the revisionist version of the story. And that's something that we're still really dealing with today, especially in museums, um, history books, like, and even textbooks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Your dad was telling me about his fourth grade textbook. We got to chatting after <laughs> um, the program. And my first thought was, that's impressive that you remember your fourth grade textbook, because I don't know if I really do. But <laughs> he said that civil rights wasn't even talked about, or the Montgomery bus boycott wasn't taught at, at his age when he was in fourth grade. Yeah. It may be, hopefully, people like you and the presentations that you're doing are bringing some of this history and these facts that are so important to life so that we have the ability to learn about them. Hopefully, yeah, that's that's definitely our goal is to spread 
awareness of what actually happened, and then also to continue Rosa Parks' legacy, which doesn't just include fighting against racism, but also sexism and all the other isms, uh, because she was on the board for Planned Parenthood, she was a sexual assault investigator for the NAACP, and she had all this, this entire other side of her personality that people just ignore. And I've seen many a time on tours when you bring up the fact that she was on Planned Parenthood, People are just like, no, I don't want to hear it. I only want to think of her as this one elderly, tired woman. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay with what she did there, but we're not going to talk about any of the other. And I think that's really problematic because you need to celebrate the woman as a whole. Well, I think of a woman like that who, you know, it's almost impossible to think that she would only have done this one thing because she was brave and smart and had a heart and cared about social justice. It makes a lot of sense to me that she would be on the board of Planned Parenthood and care about a lot of different things, not just one thing. Yeah, so there are some other women, even though Rosa Parks was the figurehead for this movement, she was not on the case that overturned bus segregation. So when she was arrested December 1st, 1955, she was in jail for a little bit. Um, Fred Gray, her lawyer, who is still a lawyer today in Tuskegee, Alabama, he tried to get her out, and no one would answer his calls because he was a, or he is a black man, and they just didn't want to have anything to do with him. So they got their friend Clifford Durr, who was a white attorney, to bail Mrs. Parks out of jail. Um, she had her hearing on December 5th, 1955, and that is the day the bus boycott began. She went in, took all of maybe 10 minutes. She was fined $10 plus $4 in court fees, which is not a lot of money. Even when you deal with inflation of it, it's not a lot of money. Um, and, you know, sent on out. She's found guilty. Uh, but the women of Browder versus Gale, which is the case that ended up overturning bus segregation, are also extremely brave, just like Rosa Parks. They were arrested for the same reason. They faced all of that harassment. They were of varying ages. There was um, Aurelia Browder, who was 39, Claudette Colvin, again, which, you know, her name's coming up again. She was 15. Mary Louise Smith was 18. And Susie McDonald was 77. There was a fifth plaintiff named Janetta Reese, and I think she was on the younger end. But she ended up backing out because she was receiving so many death threats. And But those women did not back down. They took their case. Fred Gray took their case to the Middle District Court of Alabama. And they actually found it unconstitutional, which I was very surprised to learn that a court in Alabama at that time, 1956 at this point, would say that bus segregation was unconstitutional. You know, Alabama, Montgomery... They did not like that ruling, so they decided to appeal it. So this court case worked itself up all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, and that's where it was overturned in November of 1956. And that only dealt with the bus itself. So if you were to get on an integrated bus in Montgomery, Alabama, you would have to stand at a segregated bus stop to get on this integrated bus. And like now you hear of kind of laws... Like, if you make one ruling, it can cover kind of other things. Mm-hmm. They did not do that with this. You would think that this would apply to the department stores, to the movie theaters, and everything else. But it would take another 10 years for that to happen. Now, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but in the 
now you're, you're moving into desegregation out of curiosity. Did it follow that same pattern where it was like, okay, we overturned this one tiny little thing. Okay. Now we battle this one tiny little thing about desegregation. Did it take that repeated step-by-step incremental change or was there ever a sweeping moment where they just kind of overturned it in general? I don't fully know the answer to that, but (laughs) I, I feel like it would be the incremental until 65 when the Voting Rights Act happened. Mm -hmm. And I think stuff really started to just, you know, change then. But it it took until the mid 60s for anything to happen. And I I think it was just a small, little, Mm -hmm. or large protests and legal action that was taking place in all these different courts. And, you know, a lot of places probably just turned it down. And they wouldn't move forward with it because it costs money to you know, go to court. And that's not something a lot of people could do. Right. And I thought it was really interesting in the program. I mean, I, I knew it was about the women of the Montgomery bus boycott, but then you kind of moved into civil rights imagery. You know, I grew up in the Deep South, so this has been something I've learned about since birth, the civil rights movement and Jim Crow laws and these types of things. But you asked, you know, have you really ever seen these images of these women during the civil rights movement? And I just, I remember, you know, the men walking in line and walking on the bridge, and I remember all that, but only today did I realize that, no, I had not really seen any of those images. Yeah, I never thought about that either until... I learned about, it wasn't until I realized, oh, you know, they had to organize a separate march on Washington alongside Dr. King's in 1963 because Dr. King and the other men didn't want the women marching with them. Hmm. And a lot of people think of that, that march as a very, like, unified moment in our history. I mean, it, it was, but it also wasn't. And... There are some great photos, though, of women from the Selma to Montgomery march. I think we have a Jet magazine at the museum, and it has a woman that's beating up a police officer with her girdle. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably one of my favorite things that we have in there because, you know, it shows that they've got fight in them. And a lot of people think of 1950s and 1960s women as being fragile, you know, stay-at-home, mom's homemakers. And... They can definitely still be homemakers, but they can also, you know, stand up for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I want to switch gears just a little bit because I thought another thing that you said was really interesting. Um, You talked about the amount of money that Montgomery was losing every day. and You talked about the amount then versus the amount now. Um, Can you speak to that a little bit? So inflation is crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 1955, they were losing, the bus company was losing about $3,000 a day. So that's in 1955 money. Um, Today, that's over 29,000. And I know that's changing really rapidly because I was giving a tour earlier this year and I kept saying 27,000 because I had just looked it up Mm -hmm. in I guess it would have been 2019 because we were you know, close and didn't have a lot of people in 2020. And I decided to recheck it, and it had jumped up $2,000 wow. in, in just two years. So that is a lot of money, and that's, you know, Montgomery's not a very big city. At the time, it had about 100,000 people. So that's a massive economic impact right mm-hmm. there. And 
The city, of course, was not happy with this, and they decided to arrest about 89 of the leaders of the Montgomery bus boycott, Rosa Parks included, for boycotting without a just cause, which followed a 1921 statute. Mm -hmm. And that is not only against your First Amendment rights, but you know they didn't believe that boycotting segregation was um, a just cause. Mm. So. What an insane time to live. Honestly, I can hear what you're saying, and I can imagine it, but I can't imagine living through that time. I just would be so angry all the time. I feel like lately we're kind of repeating history, mm-hmm. and I say that because I've seen the rhetoric that's been put out everywhere, you know, especially on social media, and it mirrors stuff from 1955 and 56, almost, you know down to the adjectives they used. It, it's crazy. Like, the same ideas that were used then are being used now. And so it's not as extreme. But we still definitely have social segregation. Mm-hmm. It's not legal anymore, but it's definitely still there. And we're definitely still working on trying to live in a more equitable society. And it's not something that, you know, Rosa Parks, if you go up or see, wow, racism's over. <laughs> We dealt with it. Yes. And a lot of people don't realize the violence that was happening during that time either because, again, those textbooks like to paint this as a very peaceful protest, which it was. It was peaceful on the side of the protesters. The people who were pro-segregationist, they were putting acid on cars, throwing Mm -hmm. rocks at people, setting bombs off in people's houses, putting sugar in gas tanks, um... Just anything and everything that they could do to instill fear in the community there. And we just don't talk about that. Right. And I think it's because a lot of those people who felt that way are the ones who end up telling those stories. Right. I have a book club. I mean, surprise, right? I'm a librarian. I'm in a book club. Well, we're actually an author club, so we pick an author to focus on, and we all read whatever we want or watch TED Talks or whatever. We kind of immerse ourselves in that author for the month. It was my turn to pick. So I picked Eleanor Roosevelt because <laughs> I love her. And, um, you know, JFK tapped her to be on the, like, National NAACP board. She was very um, involved in civil rights and fighting for African-American rights and doing those things. And I picked a book to focus on called If You Ask Me, which is an advice column that she wrote for 20 years from about, I think, the 40s to the 60s, this advice column. A lot of the questions that they sent in, it was asking about how do you feel about women having rights and questions about segregation, desegregation, um, dealing with African-American rights. Now, beyond that, it was also women versus men. And I was just overwhelmed with how much of the same exact thought process then as we share now. Mm-hmm. And I, it was kind of disappointing a little bit because I thought we had really kind of moved on, but it sounds the same. It's like it's on repeat. I've been struggling in the past year as of others, especially because of this, because, you know, not only am I seeing it on the news, but I'm immersed in it at work. And I'm having to see this side of history play out again. And when I've spoken out against things on a personal level, um, I have been shut down because I'm, I was a 27 year old woman. And even though I was saying, here are my sources, I'm giving you citations, and I'm not raising my voice, I'm just telling you, hey, there's 
this other side that you're not even considering and have you looked into everything? I would get shot down. I would get death threats. I was mm. having a lot of harassment. And um, it's really, really kind of disappointing to see, again, like the same language used then, now. And it's like, what have we done in 65 years? I have to say, I think I kind of struggle with the same things you did at your age and questioning and wondering and feeling the weight. But the older I get, the more I've realized, in my opinion, we have to decide how we want to impact. How do we want to live our lives and what do we want the fruit of our life work to be? And I'm a very uh, fiery person. Like, if you ask my childhood friends, I was always, like, writing a letter to Congress about the state of our textbooks and just, like, (laughs) ranting. And I am not afraid to fight. But a lot of people don't want to be uncomfortable. They really don't. So you've got people who are passionate about something on this end. You've got the majority of people in the middle who have opinions that won't share them and they don't want to be uncomfortable. But then you have, you know, how do you sway that middle? How do you make that difference? And I think what I've found, you figure out who you are, what you want to do, how you want to impact that, and then you align yourself with the people who think the same way you do, and you strategize, and you make those impacts a little bit at a time. So I don't, I wouldn't say that we haven't progressed, because it depends on the way you yeah. look at it. I, I think we have progressed, too. I sounded really pessimistic just then. but It's easy. I mean, it's very easy to do if you're on social media and mm-hmm. you watch the news and it, it creeps in and there's so much negativity out there. Mm-hmm. I think we've been trained to kind of look at that because it, you know, what what gets people riled up the most, you know? And I'm not I'm not trying to take away from the things that, that happen and that are real in society, but, you know, we have a choice of how we want to look at it. Yeah, and I, I do think we've come... A long way, especially with giving a voice to children. Kids really made an impact in the 50s and 60s. You know, again, they don't really teach that when you're fourth grade in school or wherever, because you might get inspired and you might want to go do the same thing and be, you know, good trouble, as John Lewis put it. (laughs) And my kind of favorite phrase, I guess, is you need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Amen. And just because you're uncomfortable doesn't mean you need to not experience something. Like, as a white woman, um, I went to the National Civil and Human Rights Museum, I think, in Atlanta. And it's the Civil Rights Museum there. And they have this one area where it's a simulation of the lunch counter sit-in. And you put these headphones on and... They're screaming at you, and they're trying to get you to feel what the people there were feeling of being harassed. And I had to leave the room at one point because it was was too much, because all of a sudden I hear kids singing gospel music. So I know 16th Street Baptist Church is going to be around this corner. Mm -hmm. And it upset me so much that I had to leave. And then I got even more upset with myself because that's the exact opposite thing that I should be doing. So I did go back in, but it's difficult to force yourself to be in that position when you're so used to just looking the other way. I I know exactly what you mean. We just got our civil rights and history museum in Mississippi Mm -hmm. and I, I walked through it. And it was so overwhelming. I got very, you know, I just felt very ill. And I didn't realize in the beginning they have this center room and there's this huge, beautiful 
ribbon and it goes around mm-hmm. the whole room as this light and it's peaceful and it's beautiful and it has the heroes, you know, of um, all of the black people who made a difference. They're big photos all around the ribbon. And it's very nice. I realized after going through the exhibits and experiencing it that that was the calming place mm-hmm. because you would be so disturbed by the things that you saw and the injustice. So I, I understand what you're saying and you're very right about my whole childhood was spent kind of looking the other way because it's never been put in your face and it's never been like, this is what happened and you need to learn about it. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite aspects of my job. This is going to sound so terrible of me, but I love making people uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, We have a temporary art exhibit space and I really, really like to get those in your face shows Uh, We had one that had a bloodied clan robe from the Red Summer of 1919 in it with human blood on it. Um, We had an assault rifle that was made out of human bone. We've had an exhibition on racial terror lynchings. We've had them on the transatlantic slave trade. We're about to have one on Jim Crow imagery. And I think, not that I'm trying to use that traumatic experience as like a, as entertainment or something. Like that's It's not fair for me as a white woman and curator to profit off of the black experience, but I have seen the effect that that's had on our visitors where we've had kids go through the museum and they have turned to me and said, you know, I never understood the transatlantic slave trade and how devastating it was until I saw this like three-dimensional sculpture. Mm -hmm. And I think that is how we can move forward is use empathy. I'm a big fan of visual arts or any kind of arts, but I think we can't just read it in McGraw-Hill textbook. We need to actually experience it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the more, you know, mundane things that we can put in museums, the better, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, which sounds kind of boring, but also, you'll see a pair of shoes, like the Holocaust Museum in D.C. is a great example of that, where they just have shoes mm-hmm. everywhere, and you know that those people you know, were killed, were murdered, and you just leave there thinking, you know, I've got to do something. Our goal is for you to leave thinking that, not for you to be upset and just, you know, really sad about society, but we want you to leave thinking Rosa Parks was great. But she was a normal woman. Mm-hmm. I am also a normal woman. So I can do the same thing. Maybe. Um, but everyone has that in them. They just have to find it. She mm-hmm. found it when she was 42. Or a little before, probably. I feel the same way you do. You're just much better at knowing yourself and how to say it, I think. Because of my job and because of what I personally put myself into last year with trying to remove white supremacist visual culture from public spaces. That has made me get a backbone. That and working where I work now, because if I see something I don't like, you'll know that I don't like it. But I also have to be very careful in how I do it because I can't rant and rave because that accomplishes absolutely nothing. I think I have that fiery side in me, too. And so I think it's been built up in me for a long time. And so now at, like, 27, it's just kind of out there. But my dad has told me of stuff that I did when I was really young that I don't remember at all. Like, when I was in second grade, uh, one of the congressmen or senators, somebody had visited the school. And I got in the car after school that day, and I was like, what does so-and-so stand for? And he said, typical, like, Alabama politician things. And 
I just responded, that's fine. But what's he doing for the old people? Because they need our help. And he's like, you're seven. <laughs> that's cute. But And it's, I'm like circling way back to the to the boycott, but you do have those people like Rosa Parks that you will see doing that. But then you'll have the people who are in the back questioning and making those legal decisions move forward, like mm-hmm. Virginia Durr and um, Georgia Gilmore feeding everyone and donating the money because without money, nothing can happen. Right. <laughs> and uh, Joanne Robinson, who she was the social media for the Montgomery bus boycott. Yeah. She and the pastors. They were a 1955 and 56 version of Twitter. <laughs> and Is that what you were talking about with the big press that you yes. had to crank? And they printed how many flyers? Over 50,000. By hand. By hand. That is a lot. <laughs> yeah. It is a lot to hand crank. That and then they were facing death if they got caught. Back then, even doing the slightest thing to help could result in your death. Um, or your house being bombed, like the woman you spoke about. Right. Uh, Jean Gratz, she's a good, she was a good friend of mine. Her house was bombed twice because of her involvement. She was a uh, white woman who was a neighbor to Rosa Parks, and her husband was a pastor uh, in Montgomery over uh, Trinity Lutheran Church, which was an all-black congregation. And they were all for the Montgomery bus boycott. And she was all for any kind of social justice movement. Um, She would have me come over and sit with her husband while she would go out and talk to groups. And she was like 88, 89. And I'm like, shouldn't I be like at the Capitol (laughs) steps instead of you? I love it. (laughs) I have another burning question. Okay, Okay, so we talked about the, the Montgomery bus boycott itself. And we've talked about kind of the organizational pieces of how that came to be. And we talked about the loss of income, the economic impact that was created. Now, was it just the black people at that time that refused to ride the bus that made that big of an impact? Or did white people participate? What did that look like? It was mostly the black community in Montgomery, the population at the time was about 100,000, and it was pretty equally split between whites and African-Americans. So 90% of the African-American population of Montgomery participated in the boycott. That's amazing. That is. I mean, I don't know if we could do that today. And they refused for 382 days to board a bus, and there were some white citizens who did as well, like the Gratzes and uh, the Durs and... Um, Juliet Hampton Morgan and others whose names are unknown. And there are also others who probably endorsed it, both white and black, who didn't want to say anything for fear of retaliation. And so, you know, the number could be much larger than 90% of them or, you know, whatever percentage of the white population participated. It's just like the Gratzes, you know, they were seen as quote unquote traitors to their race and pariahs. And it takes a lot of courage to be okay with being called that. And, you know, knowing that something terrible may happen to you or your family because of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why there's not a lot known about the white community in Montgomery, because I do know that probably quite a few were Mm pro-segregation. But I'm sure there were some who weren't. And there were white women who were homemakers who had... Uh, maids and nannies and cooks who were boycotting. And even if they were not for the boycott, they didn't want to lose their workers. And so they would go and pick them up. And so they actually contributed to the boycott, even if they didn't really want to. (laughs) 
Yeah, but I think it was incredibly smart to do what they did and hit that city right in the heart where it hurts. And they aligned themselves and they proved their power. To me, that's the courageousness and the the strategy and the solidarity, I think, of the whole thing that I've learned about with you today has been the most inspiring. Thanks. I, yeah, we... We get a lot of fourth grade tours, or we used to before mm-hmm. COVID, um, and we we definitely want them to know Rosa Parks was just a normal woman, and it doesn't matter how old you are, you know, if something's not okay, you can do something about it. And I think I got in trouble with some teachers after a virtual tour the other week because they asked, you know, what their seventh graders can do. Uh, now and I said, "Oh, challenge authority!" And they're like, "No, no, 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 no!" It's like, "No, I don't mean it like that, though." I mean, I don't remember who told me, but I'll, it's just something that always runs through my mind, and I repeat it a lot. I say, "Question everything." Mm-hmm. So you know, you can say it one way or the other, but question everything. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I have really enjoyed the opportunity to get to know you a little and talk with you and learn from you. Sure, thank you so much for having us. This is our first time doing something other than just setting up the exhibits and, you know, running running back to the museum. So this has been really nice. And to be able to see the impact that it's had on the community has really been great. Well, tell the listeners how they can find your museum and the information. All right. So you can visit us at www.troy.edu slash Rosa Parks, um, or we are on Facebook as Troy University's Rosa Parks Museum. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Rosa Parks Museum. You can DM us. I do the social media, so I'll see it. Or you can email us at rosaparks at troy.edu. And I think these traveling exhibits are booked out through summer of 2022, which is incredible. And that's just of Alabama. That's awesome. Uh, Libraries and um, community centers. That's exciting. I don't think we've ever had an emphasis like the Rosa Parks Museum and what you're doing. So again, I'm very excited that you were able to come here and and get to see them and learn about them and experience them. Thank you again. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. You've been listening to Between the Stacks, a podcast produced by the Athens Limestone County Public Library. Join us next time as we meet the people and programs making an impact on the community of Athens and Limestone County, Alabama. To hear other recordings from our Library Voices podcast series, please visit the Athens Limestone County Library website at alcpl.org. Library Voices is also now available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Marching on the freedom, freedom.